Great job. Take your Bibles, turn with me this morning to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter number 6. <clears throat> I believe the most common sin among Christians is the sin of worry. You may not like that statement. Why? Because most of us are guilty of that sin. I've said often that I come from a long line of short warriors, so I understand completely. Why do we call it a sin? Well, the Bible defines sin as anything that God says not to do. And as we will see in our text today, Jesus says, do not worry. If you were to look up the word worry in the dictionary, you would discover that worry means to torment oneself with disturbing thoughts. In fact, the English word worry is derived from an old German word, worgen, which means to choke or to strangle. And that is exactly what worry does in our lives. Now, sometimes counter, people counter by saying, I don't worry, I'm just concerned. Now there is a difference between sinful worry and godly concern. The difference is that worry sees the problem while concern seeks a solution. Sinful worry always involves fear that makes us weaker, whereas concern employs faith which makes us stronger. Worry always fears what might happen, but concern trusts God with what will happen. Worry makes you fear possible bad things in the future by creating the what-if scenario. What if I get sick? What if I lose my job? What if I can't pay my bills? What if they foreclose on my home? Your mind gets stuck in a fear mode, and this kind of agonizing, fearful thought creates paralysis. You're afraid to do anything. Someone said, the greatest mistake in life is constantly fearing that you'll make one. Worry is usually, as we see over the ordinary things of life, 40% about things that will never happen. 30% about the past, which we cannot change. 12% about the criticism of others, mostly untrue. 10% about our health, which gets worse with stress. And only about 8% about the real problems that we will face. What does your anxiety or your worry do? It doesn't empty tomorrow of its sorrow, but it empties today of its strength. It does not allow you to escape the evil, but it renders you unfit to cope with it when it comes. The term that Matthew uses for worry, and he uses it five times, comes from the Greek word, which is made up of two words. One word, which means to divide, and the other word, which means mind. So it means to divide the mind. In the Gospels, we read about one individual 
that Jesus actually told them, you worry too much. He spoke those words to a woman named Martha. In Luke chapter 10, we read about a visit that Jesus made to the home of Martha and her sister Mary, who, are, who were the sisters of Lazarus. After Jesus arrived at their home in Bethany, Martha was busy in the kitchen preparing a meal for their guests, while her sister, Mary, sat at the feet of Jesus and listened as he taught. Martha got upset because she was doing all the work while her sister was just sitting and listening to Jesus. Finally, in exasperation, Martha stormed into the room and she confronted Jesus, saying to him, Lord, don't you care? that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself. Tell her to help me. Instead, Jesus answered in Luke chapter 10 and verses 41 and 42, Martha, Martha, you were worried and troubled about many things, but only one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen that good part which will not be taken from her. Martha's mind was consumed with worry. And there are thousands of tired and irritated people like Martha in our churches today. And maybe you are one of them. It is this very issue that the Lord now addresses in his Sermon on the Mount. The word therefore, which begins verse 25, verse 31, and verse 34 introduce three specific reasons why worry is wrong. And I'd like you to take the time to underline each of the occurrences of the word therefore as we read through the text together, beginning in verse number 25. It begins with the word therefore, underline it. Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and body more than clothing? <clears throat> Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Verse 31, Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall you eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? <clears throat> For after all these things... The Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need your need of all these things, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. And then the last occurrence, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. The translators of most modern translations did not retain the expressions found in the King James Version which says therefore take no thought about your life and therefore take no thought for tomorrow. Unfortunately that 
choice of terms has led some down through the years to believe that Jesus was warning against working for a living or against making proper provision for the future. And this, of course, is not what Jesus is saying at all. Jesus now turns his attention on the subject of worry. In fact, he mentions the subject of worry five times in ten verses. In verse 25, we find, do not worry. In verse 27, which of you by worrying? In verse 28, which of you, why do you worry? In verse 31, do not worry. And he repeats in verse 34, and do not worry. I want to share with you three things drawn from those three therefores found in our text. First of all, therefore, do not worry because it is unworthy of our God. The therefore that begins verse 25 takes us back to what Jesus said in verse 24, which was, you cannot serve God and money. Last week's passage that we dealt with focused on people's attitudes toward physical possessions that they might store and stockpile for selfish reasons. In today's passage, he focuses on the attitude toward the necessities of life, those things that we must have in order to exist, such as something to eat, something to drink, and clothes to wear. And while the previous thought of the previous passage may have been directed to the well-to-do, this section applies to the poor. Both have their own special spiritual problems. The rich, the wealthy, they're tempted to become self-satisfied in the false security of their wealth and their possessions. The poor, on the other hand, are tempted to worry and be fearful with a false insecurity of their poverty. Both rich and poor are given to worry. And Jesus points out that to worry over things that are God's responsibility to provide for us is an insult to God, for it is to doubt either his capacity to care about us or his ability to provide for us. And now in verse 25, Jesus addresses the common concern of the necessities of life. He says, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. He said, I know you're concerned about security. I know you're concerned about a home and food and clothing, but my advice to you is not to worry about those things. But the truth be known, our worries today are in our country and this time are seldom about clothing or about whether we will have sufficient food for the day. But if Jesus told those who had one simple garment to their, in their possession and they really did have to work every day in order to have food for that day, if he told them to not worry about those things, then what would he say to us? Jesus makes his point by asking two questions and providing two illustrations. The first question is found in the second half of verse 25. Is not life more than food and body more than clothing? And of course the answer to that is an absolute yes. And then in verse 26 he provides an illustration 
of why they should not worry. He says, look, that is an imperative in the Greek, that means it's a command, look at the birds, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? He says, I want you to look at the birds, and I want you to understand the goodness and faithfulness of God the Creator. If the Heavenly Father cares for the birds of the air, He will surely provide for His children. But there is something I think you ought to note, and that is that although the birds do not worry, they do work. They don't just sit in their nest and wait for God to throw a morsel into their mouths. They work. The second question is found in verse 27 when he says, Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? One good reason for stopping the behavior of worrying is that worry accomplishes nothing. Although a cubit is a unit of measurement, most of us understand it's the length from here to the elbow of a man, equivalent of 18 inches, most commentaries believe that the word cubit here refers to the length of life rather than a person's height. So in effect, he is saying, I know that you're concerned about how you'll come across to other people, whether they will accept you or not. I just want to tell you that all the worry in the world will not make you taller or more beautiful or anything else. And then beginning in verse 28, Jesus illustrates the needlessness of worry. He says, why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? <clears throat> Once again, in the, when we look at the word consider here, consider the lilies of the field, the word consider is an imperative, which means once again that it is a command. And the command carries the idea of stopping what you're already doing. The flowers that are being described here are probably the wildflowers, the wildflowers of the hills and woodside of that country. And if God so clothes this world with these temporary wildflowers with such beauty and splendor that they surpass all the finery of King Solomon and all his riches, how much more will he care for his children? Because our Father is the God of all knowledge, worry isn't necessary, and because he is the God of provision, it is unworthy to worry. Yet we still worry, and such worry is sinful. Secondly, notice it says, therefore, do not worry because worry robs us of our testimony. Beginning in verse 31. Therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you have need of all these things. When Jesus says... <clears throat> These are the things that the Gentiles seek. He's saying, you're thinking just like a pagan. In that day and time, there were only two kinds of people as far as the Jews understood it. There were Jews 
And there were Gentiles. There were Jews and non-Jews. There were believers and non-believers. If you weren't a Jew, you weren't a believer. If you weren't a Jew, you were a pagan. He's saying it was only natural for those who have no faith, no belief in the true God, to seek whatever satisfaction they can find in pleasures in this world. Their philosophy is still very much with us today. Grab all the gusto you can. It's that old let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die philosophy. He says, however, you as people of faith, you should not be concerned about the things of this life as if this is all there is and that there is nothing else. Our significance is not found in those things. Our significance is found in our relationship with God. Verse 33 says, but seek ye first the kingdom of God. The word seek here doesn't mean to look for something not present. For Jesus has already announced the arrival of the kingdom. In this context, it means that his disciples are to make the kingdom of heaven the center of their continual daily process. So seek here is suggesting an unceasing quest. The things of God and eternity are to occupy a place of priority in our thoughts and desires. We are not to neglect our duties and responsibilities here and now, but we are not to let them have first place in our lives. So what does it mean when we say we must seek the kingdom of God first? I think that we have to understand that the king cannot be separated from the kingdom. We seek the kingdom by making a commitment to the king. In the kingdom, the king is number one. So let me ask you, is God first place in your life? I'm not asking you if he's present in your life, but is he preeminent in your life? I'm not asking you if he has a piece of your life, I'm asking you, does he have the priority in your life? While most Christians would agree with the statement that God ought to have the priority in your life, that there's nothing more important than the Lord, they often don't live that out in the day-to-day -day pursuits of their life. So can I offer you a few simple suggestions on how to make God a priority in your life? First of all, by giving him the first thought of every day. Psalm 5, verse 3 says, My voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning I will direct it to you, and I will look up. We can begin to make God a priority in our lives by surrendering our day at the beginning of the day to the control and guidance of the Lord. Then when the alarm, the alarm clock goes off, instead of saying, Good Lord, it's morning, we can say, good morning, Lord. Secondly, make, making God a priority in your life by giving him the first day of the week. Acts 20, verse 7, now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread. There's something I don't understand in life. Well, I guess there are probably a, a lot of things I don't understand in life, but one of them is Christians who get up on Sunday morning and decide whether or not they're going to church. That baffles me. What is there to decide? 
If you're a Christian and it's Sunday and you're not ill, then you ought to be in church. That simple. If God is a priority in your life, then the least you can offer him is the first day of the week. You can make God a priority in your life by giving him the first fruit of our increase. Proverbs 3, 9 says, Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruit of your increase. We still need to remember that when we prosper, God should be the first one that comes to our minds. Why is it when we get a financial blessing, often the last thing we think about is how we ought to be thankful to God. And lastly, make God a priority in your life by giving Him the first consideration in every decision. Second, Corinthians 8, 5 says, but they first gave themselves to the Lord. Let me ask you if this scenario sounds familiar. I need a job, yet I have not asked God for his help nor his direction. I begin to fill out applications, but I have not asked for his guidance. I begin to interview for position, but God still hasn't heard from me. I begin to receive offers, yet I have not asked God for his intervention. I accept a job without knowing the demands of the job, and ultimately I find that I am, not, that I am being pulled away from my church. Finally, after all this has happened, and I realize that I've made a mistake, then I begin to call out to God to get me out of this mess. That sound familiar to do? Let me close with this part of that with an admonition from Henry Drummond, a scientist at the turn of the 20th century. He was speaking to a group of college students and he made this statement, Gentlemen, I beseech you to seek the kingdom of God first or not at all. I promise you a miserable time if you seek it second. I think it hit, he hit it dead on. And verse 33 ends the with the promise that if we seek first the kingdom of God, then all these things will be added to you. This is a promise of God that if we seek his kingdom first, then he will meet our needs. But notice there are two limitations that he places on that offer. First, this promise is only directed to the children of God, not all men indiscriminately. And secondly, it is a promise of the provision of necessities, not of luxuries. It is, not, it is for one's needs, not one's greeds. And third and finally, and this is a very short one this morning, therefore do not worry because worry robs us of our effectiveness. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble." I just want to give you a quote here from John Stott. He said, each day has enough troubles of its own. So why anticipate them? If we do so, we double them. Think about this. If our fears do not materialize, we have worried for nothing. If they do materialize, we have worried twice instead of once. In both cases, it is foolish. Worry doubles our trouble. Let me just conclude this morning by saying I believe that the Apostle Peter was a worrier, a great worrier. 
toward the end of his life, he wrote in his first epistle his secret for overcoming worry. It's found in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7. Casting all your care on him, for he cares for you. The word care in this verse is the same word that we just saw in the Sermon on the Mount. But the word cast is not the normal word for throwing. I like that word in Greek, by the way. It's ekbolo. It means to throw. It's not the normal word, though, for throwing something. This is a word that means a definite act of the will by which we stop worrying about things and let God assume the responsibility for our welfare. Let's pray. Father, we recognize, most of us at least, that we're worriers. The best of us and probably the most of us worry. That we allow anxious thoughts to come into our hearts and minds. Sometimes so much that it literally paralyzes us with fear. We know that it is not a part of your will for our lives that we live in fear. And that we can, since you have asked us not to do this, we can give up the practice of worrying. And we can do that by bringing those things that we worry about to you and laying those concerns at your feet, knowing that you are our loving Heavenly Father and that you desire to take care of us and provide for us. We ask, Lord, you'd help us this morning to cast our cares upon you. We pray, Lord, that we would be willing to day by day, moment by moment, live in such communion with you that we can bring those things that trouble us to you. Maybe there's someone here this morning that really does, in all seriousness, fight a battle with worry. And I pray this morning that they would begin a journey that would give them the victory over that worry in their lives. Father, there may be others here who have never really started a faith journey with you. They've never turned their hearts and lives over you. They don't have the right to come to you and ask those things because they've not yet become your children. I pray if there's one here this morning that recognizes that there's never been a time in their life when they've recognized their sin. They've repented of that sin and come to you and simply asked for forgiveness. And Lord, I pray that this might be the morning, this might be the time. Whatever it is that you want to do in our hearts and lives, we want to give this time over to you. If we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.